Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future with totally new sources of information that will change the way you run your business. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Yes, indeed. Here I am. And welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the best run, you want to run with the Game Changers, and we are right here for you. So stick around. We have a very interesting show. I have a buzz topic today from Werner Vinge, V-E-R-N-O-R-V-I-N-G-E. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. He is an emeritus professor of mathematics at San Diego State University, but also considered one of the greatest science fiction writers alive today. Who knew a math professor? professor could write great science fiction. But here's the quote. Let's set this up. What we have is a data glut. What we really want is the ability to manipulate the information and to reach conclusions from it. I think we're at the point where that is slipping beyond unaided humans' abilities. So the real thing to be looking for is processing schemes. I know that's a lot to grasp, but the key is in the first sentence, data glut and how do we manipulate it. So let me give you a little more background on our topic. Data is everywhere, period, end of sentence, get over it. We know that. And it's finding its way into every cloud. Here's the good news. Companies, businesses, whoever you are listening to us all over the world, and thank you for listening, companies have more data at their fingertips than ever before. This could be a good thing. Here's the not so good news. Companies are losing their ability to control that data. And what's the downside of that? They are not understanding their customers and even their own businesses. But what's keeping businesses awake at night? They fear these terrible words from the auditors asking, where did that data come from and how do you know it's reliable? Ah, you don't want to hear that ever. So our panel today will explore the explosion of data challenges and data and the newest emerging strategies to tame the issues. The experts speak. I've got three experts on the panel. Let me tell you briefly who they are and then we'll get started. First up, I'm welcoming back in about a minute here, Chris Hallenbeck. He's the global head of database and data management. We call that DDM. Go to market and product management organization at SAP. Wait till you hear the quote he sent me. Joining him are two newcomers. We've got Brian Hunter. He spells his first name B-R-Y-A-N if you want to look him up. Program Director of Business Intelligence at Siemens Product Lifestyle Management Software, Inc. And drowning out the panel, another newcomer, Chris Kernahan. I'll spell his last name if you want to see who he is. K-E-R-N-A-G-H-A-N. He's the Global Head of Database and Technology, working in the Bluefin SAP practice at Mindtree. So welcome to our panelists. Let's circle around to Mr. Chris Hallenbeck and let's see what his quote is. He sent me a quote from the police. You know the band. Let me give you a little background. British rock band formed in London 1977. Is anybody listening even old enough to remember them? Well, some of us are. Uh, the band consisted of Sting. We still know him. Andy Summers on guitar and Stuart Copeland on drums and percussion. They became very popular in the 70s and 80s. Unfortunately, they disbanded in 1986, but they reunited in 2007 for a one-off world tour, and it was a terrific, terrific tour. They were the world's highest earning musicians in 2008, thanks to the reunion tour. What can I tell you? Six Grammys, two Brit Awards, British Group Music of the Year, everything. Here is the quote from the song Secret Journey. You will see light 
in the darkness. You will make some sense of this. Chris Hallenbeck, welcome back to Game Changers. How are you? I'm doing really well, Bonnie. Thank you very much. Seems like you're a police fan as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love the lyrics. I love Sting, actually. When he sings, I don't think there's anybody on the planet who doesn't stop and listen to what he's saying. So talk to me about why you chose You Will See Light in the Darkness. You Will Make Some Sense of It. Sounds like it's perfect for our topic about data, data everywhere. Chris? Well, that's what I thought, but it's also, to be honest, it's the quote that I put in uh, when I was doing my write-up in the senior year book when I was graduating from high school. <laughs> um, it was one of my favorite songs. Um, gotcha. I, I knew you'd get a kick out of. But I think it's really prescient at the moment, maybe in a lot of the different waves of technologies we've been seeing, whether, you know, we were hearing about big data, and it just can, and, you know, maybe some of the 3Vs helped out people, but it was really confusing. Eventually, though, people started to grapple with it and what that meant. And I think we've seen the same thing happening, too, as we've been going through and talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning and the various aspects of kind of called data science as a broad thing. Everyone talked about it, but honestly, when you went through and talked to companies, that a data scientist here or there, but they wasn't being applied. I mean, if you believe one of the major analyst firms, only 4%, this is today, of companies, corporations, have actually deployed an algorithm to do automated business process. They do a lot of analysis to give an insight to marketing, but they don't actually use it in a regular way. Like, they haven't productionalized it. And actually, I just saw that turning. I just got back from uh, SAP's Big Conference Sapphire, and you started mm-hmm. to see that changing, where people are doing custom algorithms, not just off-the-shelf stuff provided by folks like SAP um, and other software vendors. And I think that's where we are with the cloud and corporations. Sure, you hear about the big web scalers using it extensively, the Netflix and others, but when it comes to corporations, they're using it. But when you actually talk about how it fits within all their processes, governance, how they're going to, how they, how they intend to leverage that data that's sitting out in the cloud, um, and, and to help automate business processes, how are they understanding their customer, which they do exactly as your quote said, complain and say it's getting harder, they're mm-hmm. not. They went to the cloud, but they haven't really figured out how to match, manage all that data and, and how to harmonize that information. And they're losing insight to their customers, and they're grappling with that. I think we're going to get through that, but I think that is the darkness right now, and I think we're going to break through. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you, Chris. Uh, what about the part about the auditors? Is this really an issue? I know I was sent that as part of my opening from the abstract that Ira Burke sent me, but is is there really that fear? Are the auditors really looking at the data and saying, hmm, that sounds great, but where the blank did it come from? How can we use that? How can we know it's real? And that is our topic, by oh, the way, absolutely. to our listeners, data, data everywhere, absolutely. but why can't we trust it? Are they really? No, uh, it was amazing. So doing research for a, uh, for actually Data Hub, the product that SAP has recently launched, I was going through and interviewing all the different analysts throughout the industry. I probably did 15 different interviews with analysts of different parts covering different aspects of the software spectrum, customers and others, and it came up repeatedly. And I think it's been brought up uh, because of GDPR in Europe, and I mm-hmm. think the rest of the world is waking up that they actually have to follow GDPR, even though they're not European corporations, because if you do data with a European corporation, you're at risk of 4% of your revenue being fined in a world court, and Europe is saying they're going to be very serious about enforcing the law. And so what has happened is we've kind of had this last decade, I call it you know, the decade of data democratization with agile analytics and anyone can do any query on any data. We've seen the same thing happen with a data scientist wanting to do that. And then we've seen agile applications kicking up where business people can build applications in, you know, in a week or two, not having to go to IT. No one's tracking where the data's come from. 
and they sort of lost control of it. And so uh, as the probably the leading industry analyst and in, in, in enterprise information management tend to be, Chris, right now, overall, on a, on a scale of 1 to 10, he's like, this is about an 8. And I said, wow, that's mm. not big. He goes, no, 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 no. He said, actually, though, that's the average. He said it's about a 6 for about 50% of the companies. And for the people that have figured out what a big problem and mess they've created over the last decade, it's a 16. And I was like, you're telling me it's a 16 out of 10? He goes, yeah, this is actually keeping people awake at night right now all over the world. About half of all of the major CGOs, CIOs, chief data officers, this is what the number one issue is. Thank you, Chris. That certainly level sets us for this topic. And as I said before, if you're just tuning in, our topic is data, data everywhere. But why can't we trust it? And we're about to find out. First up was Chris Hallenbeck at SAP. Next, I'm going to be speaking with Brian Hunter at Siemens Product Lifecycle Management Software. And Brian has sent us a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. Those of you not up on American history, Theodore Roosevelt, Jr., 1858 to 1919, American statesman and writer who served as the 26th president of the U.S. from 1901 to 1909 and the 25th vice president of the U.S. from March to September 1901. And he wasn't busy enough. He was the 33rd governor of New York from 1899 to 1900. And I just didn't know this fact, Brian. I found this on Wikipedia. Teddy Roosevelt's face is depicted on Mount Rushmore next to Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln. I guess that just escaped me in my history class a couple decades ago. She lies. Anyway, here is the quote. It's not the critic who counts. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. And I know it's a very, very long quote, but this was the gist of it that I called. So, Brian Hunter, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? I'm great, Bonnie. How about yourself? Well, thank you for asking. You're very kind. I'm glad to be here with you and Chris H. and Chris K. So tell me how you picked this quote, and I'm going to look for the, for the full quote, but it was very, very long. So let's talk about what this means to our topic. Um, for two reasons. One is that um, I used to work for uh, Perot Systems, uh, Ross Perot's company after EDS, mm. and um, he, he had this beautiful brass eagle um, in the entryway with this quote on it. And uh, and he lived he, he and his company lived that, which is, you know, you, you have to be willing to get in the arena and sweat and fail and um, and the the quote is really about about that, but also about the the end of the quote is really about the people on the sidelines that are critical of the people in the arena. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the 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 gist of it is that the people in the arena are actually doing something. The people that are critical are nothing more than armchair quarterbacks. And um, I know in my in IT here at uh, PM Software, um, we we get bloody and we fail, and it's it's often easy for people to criticize us when in fact we're we're uh, making good decisions and doing the right thing for the customer. So that that quote came to mind for me. Wow. And now let me read the full quote. Thank you, Brian. And here we go. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who actually, who does actually strive to do the deeds? His, I'm sorry, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, 
and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. This is a great quote. I've, I've seen it before, and uh, yes, a great quote. A lot of meat on the bones there. Thank you, Brian. Uh, what's your take on, on what I asked Chris Hallenbeck a moment mm-hmm. ago about whether it's really fearful that the auditors are going to say, nope, can't use that. Tell me where you got it. Tell me why it's real. What do you think? Well, I actually used to be an um, IT liaison to all of our audits. Um, Siemens loves audits, and they have a very powerful internal audit team. Um, and we work also closely with uh, with other uh, with uh, third party auditors that, that verify the internal audit. So I've had a lot of experience in this arena. And what I would say to that is, it depends on the kind of data it is. Um, there are some kinds of data that the auditors couldn't care less about, but anything mm-hmm. that's PMI or uh, financial, um, they, they, they do care about it. Um, so if you are handling financial data, yes, you better have um, the, the source of the data and, and, and be able to explain from the origin to the end where it comes from and uh, also be able to prove that the systems that are manipulating the data are, are you know, pretty much hands-off from, hum- from a human perspective. Um, that the that the people can't get in there and and muck with the data. Um, you know, you want to have the, as few people as possible with with system or ad, administrative access to the data. Um, and you want again, you want to have very defined and and, uh, and followed processes uh, to verify the data. Um, on the second part of the question of the the data journey, um, mm-hmm. and by the way, I mean th- this is something we face every every day. I spent yesterday two hours with uh, with one of our internal finance people reconciling data. So it's it is something that's that's the reality of IT, um, and it's something that must be done and and is and has and has to be done well. Um, as far as the data journey goes, I think what you know there's kind of a journey with data. So you you know when you kind of start down the road of of, of BI. You don't really, you don't even know what you don't know, right? You, you're just kind of mm-hmm. starting out. So you go do a discovery process of, um, of what, what is it that we, where have we been? You know, we look at, we look backwards at, at the revenue that we've earned, at the orders that have been, that have been, uh, made, uh, the, the personnel and, and the, the thing, the, and how things have gone there. And over time, you, 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 you are able to define within your company culture what is good and what is bad. And so then the good, the, the stuff that's good, you don't really, I won't say you don't care about it, but you don't want to spend time managing things that are going well, right? You want to manage, mm-hmm. spend your time managing things that aren't going well, whether it be your, your uh, uh, opportunity pipeline is down or your revenue in a certain sector of the world is, is, is going down or, or whatever it is. You, you have 24 hours in a day and you want to, you want to manage the things that, that mean something. So you really want to structure your reporting around that, right? Management mm-hmm. by exception. Um, so then, from from there, you can you can also move to predictive, where you can use the historic um, information that you have, and and run it through through different kinds of um, algorithms to see if and to see if you can predict what in the future um, the areas that might be of, of interest for growth or 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 areas that are not going to grow. Um, so, so the predictive analytics is another, you know, kind of a, a, a big step for a company to get to where they can, can hopefully um, be forewarned, you know, of, of, of impeding, of incoming good or bad things that, are going, that may be happening. 
based on Thank historic uh, information. So. Thank you, Brian. Very interesting. When you're talking about uh, the handling of the data, it reminded me I've, I've been binge watching the show Suits, which Meghan Markle was uh, was starred in. She was one of the six lead characters, the young lady mm-hmm. who just married Prince Harry. And I've been watching it. It's my, my summer guilty pleasure. And they talk about chain of custody of the evidence. And in one case, yeah. they said there was 20-minute gap when the police were not in full custody of the evidence, which changed the course of a murder trial. So I'm not going to get any more dramatic than that, but that's what it reminded me of when you said it. So you'll get used to my little sidebars. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to know you, and thanks for all the great information. And waiting patiently in the wings is Chris Kernahan from Bluefin SAP Practice at Mindtree. And Chris has sent us a quote that's simply six little words, and they're from Hugh McLeod, M-A-C-L-E-O-D. He's from Gaping Void. Let me give you a little background. He's the co-founder and artistic director of this company. He founded it with his partner, Jason Corman, in 2008. It creates The company creates custom artwork for big companies. You've heard of a few of these, Intel, HP, Microsoft, Roche, Zappos, VMware, VW, and more. And it's hung in over 5,000 companies around the world. McLeod is a highly regarded author. He writes on the themes of innovation, creativity and motivation. His book, Ignore Everybody, I like that one, began life on his popular marketing blog, gapingvoid.com, as an ebook. It was downloaded, get this, over 5 million times and enjoyed by readers all over the world and made the Wall Street Journal's bestsellers list. So here is the quote. Get ready. Write this down. Life is short. Make it amazing. Chris Kernan, love the quote. How are you, Chris? I'm very well, Bonnie. Thank you very much for having me. How are you? We, I'm very well. You're very kind to ask. So tell me, are you a big fan of Mr. McLeod and Gaping Void? I'm a massive fan. I actually have a couple of his prints hanging in my study. Wow. My, uh, my, my wife. Um, yeah, the, 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 the quote for me is, is, is really about um, you know, the, the ongoing journey of learning and um, my own journey to the point of, of, of where data has actually become a big part of my, my working life. So I, I started out as a very technical consultant and, and through the years I got to know various people and, and, and um, one particular person I got to know was Dennis Howlett, um, one of the industry analysts um, in the SAP ecosystem. And he, he introduced me to, to Hugh, Hugh McLeod's work in the book Ignore Everybody and, and Evil Plans. And um, I, I, I became very interested in this idea of being a digital crofter. Um, mm-hmm. The idea that in history, crofters were, were people who lived off the land, fished, um, hunted, farmed, um, were mechanics, engineers, um, but did everything pretty much themselves. And um, I, I find it interesting because throughout so much of my career, I, I had picked up many, many different skills. And my career has led me from a very technical uh, background through into cloud um, and then to DevOps and then into big data. And uh, the, the, over the last four or five years, I have worked an awful lot in data and, and explored various areas of, of, of data. And um, I suppose for me, it, 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 that quote has, has reflected just a, 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 as a uh, the fact that I'm a digital magpie and I'm always trying to learn something mm-hmm. new, I'm always trying to do something new. And as I said, coming coming through into into data, into big data, 
understanding analytics, understanding uh, data science, and all that sort of stuff. Um, it really has just made me extremely happy because I do believe the quote, you know, life is short and you should make it amazing. You should do something that is, you know, that is special to you that, that keeps you interested. Mm-hmm. Chris, I looked up magpie. I know it's a bird, but I didn't know exactly what kind of a bird. I'm just going to read this because you call yourself a digital magpie. Magpies are birds of the Corvidae family. The black and white Eurasian magpie is considered one of the most intelligent animals in the world. And one of the only, wait, it gets better. It gets better. And one of the only non-mammal species able to recognize itself in a mirror. Did you know that? Did you know I, all of that? I, 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 I did, but the, the, the actual the reason why I'm, I describe myself as a digital magpie is, is simply because they're attracted to shiny things. And uh, in the world of technology, <laughs> uh, the newest technology is usually described as a shiny thing. So I quite often find myself going, ooh, shiny thing. Um, so um, Chris Chris H has already referenced Data Hub as, as as a as a tool that, that 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 we use within our ecosystem, and, and that is something that I've looked at simply because it was the shiny thing. It is the shiny thing, so I've been playing with it. That's why I describe myself as a digital magpie. Thank you very much. Oh, talk about holding up the mirror. I appreciate that. Very, very interesting. I also looked up crofting, which is a form of farm land ownership in Scotland. Very interesting. You've given me a couple of words. I, I never heard of crofting, so thank you very much. And now let's go back around the table to Chris Allenbeck. And Chris, you know it's coming. I want to know where you are in the world today. No, we don't need the digital coordinates, the Google map coordinates of the roof of your house or the number on your office door, but we'd love to know where you are. And what What's in your cup today, meaning what's your favorite drink in the whole wide world if you're not drinking it right now? And, of course, alcoholic beverages are welcome. So go ahead, Chris Hallenbeck. <laughs> today I am talking to you from Mexico City, uh, so very far away from home, uh, but with fantastic food. Uh, and was in Monterey yesterday. So uh, that's it. And then in my cup, although i got a cappuccino right now, I'm pretty much, I love Manhattan, to be honest. And you want to tell me what's in them? And actually, a panelist yesterday uh, mentioned Manhattan as well, and I think I read the ingredients on the air. You want me to read them real fast? Uh, <laughs> vermouth, bourbon, yep. or whiskey, depending on what you want, and some good bitters. That's absolutely mm-hmm. right. And it's garnished with a maraschino cherry. And when he says bitters, he means Angostura bitters. And it can have either two ounces of rye or Canadian whiskey and three quarters of an ounce of sweet red vermouth. What a coincidence. A panelist yesterday on one of our, we did two shows yesterday. Uh, we debuted a new series, Chris, called Game Changing Retail Leaders. And I think it was on that show. One of my guests said he loved the Manhattan cocktail. So anybody can look it up, Manhattan, just like part of New York. What can I say? Thank you, Chris. Uh, glad you're calling. Calling in from your travels to Mexico City. I think we're all a little bit jealous. Sounds great. And now let's turn to Brian Hunter. Where are you and what do you love to drink, Brian? I am in beautiful Plano, Texas, about 20 miles north of Dallas at the uh, BLM Software he- uh, Corporate Headquarters. And my, uh, my favorite drink is a good Hefeweizen yeast beer. And they uh, originated out of Germany. Belgium also makes them. Um, and the one that I like best is called Live Oak, which is brewed right here in beautiful Texas. Very interesting. And I'm looking at the Hefeweizen. There are several different ways to spell it. 
Uh, you can look it up. I found it under H-E-F-F-E-R-V-E-I-S-E-N. And there's a big question here. Is it a, is it a lager or an ale? What's your opinion? Oh, it's definitely an ale. It's not a lager. Okay. So it's here's a, the, a, here's the, the funny thing is, Hefeweizen means yeast, but most people will say it's a Hefeweizen yeast beer. So you're kind of saying yeast twice. Yes, you are. It said, the, the little note here I found from January 2009, I don't know where this is. There's an actual uh, article called Hefeweizen, and they spell it H-E-F-E-W-E-I-Z-E-N, Facts and Fiction in Imbibe Magazine. So I guess there is a lot of lore around it. If breweries aren't using that yeast, it's not a Hefeweizen. It's just a cloudy wheat beer. Top fermenting yeast such as that correct. Top fermenting yeast such as those used in craft ales work at higher temperatures and produce a fruitier, sweeter beer than their bottom fermenting counterparts used in drier tasting cold brewed lagers. So there we have the truth about Hefeweizen. I well, didn't one, know one that. Another interesting fact yeah. I found um, at a uh, actually an Austrian restaurant in Plano, which is if you if you get the draft, um, there's a lot of sediment in that type of beer. The draft uh, filters out the sediment. It's in the bottom of the keg, so you don't get it. Whereas if you get bottled Hefeweizen, then the sediment's in there. So it's actually better to drink a bottled Hefeweizen than draft. Well, that's interesting. Mm. It sounds like Turkish coffee with the grounds in the bottom. I like that, too. Thank you very much. I'll be sure to ask for Hefeweizen next time I'm in the mood for a beer. We, we love to have unusual drinks here, so you, you, I give you a, a bravo for that. Thank you, Brian. Chris <laughs> Kernahan, where are you today, and what's your favorite drink in the whole wide world? Oh, so uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm currently calling from my house, which is... Uh, about 25 miles southwest of Belfast in Northern Ireland. So I'm, 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 I'm in Europe. Um, my, my drink at the moment is actually waiting for me later on this evening, which is actually a, a, a mojito. So um, and that, that drink is special to me because that's um, when we uh, have a go live or we have a successful pitch and things like that there, I will sit down in a nice quiet area and just have a nice mojito and relax and chill out. I like that. A mojito, for those of you who are uninitiated, is a traditional Cuban highball drink. A mojito is a cocktail that consists of five ingredients, white rum, sugar, lime juice, soda water, and mint. I love the picture with the mint on the top. And you can look it up. Mint sprigs are muddled with sugar and lime juice. Rum is added and topped with soda water, garnished with a sprig of mint, served with a straw. That's so you can drink it faster, right, Chris? I know that. (laughs) Get to the alcohol quicker. (laughs) There you go. There you go. There you go. Get to the booze quicker. Thank you very much. And Chris Hallenbeck may remember this, but the other two don't. They don't let me anywhere near caffeine on radio show days, and I think you figured out why. I do have a cool, clear glass of water. I'm here in my home office in Durham, North Carolina, and it is a beautiful, sunny day. Completely blue sky. We've had gray. They keep telling me on Alexa, I have to say it low because she'll talk to me from the other room. Uh, she told me that there it was just going to be... Uh, in the sep- there she is talking to me. It was going to be in the 70s yesterday. Come on, it was about 91 degrees here. This weather is so similar to Florida. I didn't expect this. I know it's the south, but we can have a rain squall, a thunderstorm in the middle of the afternoon for 20 minutes, pelting rain. Sounds like hail on the top of the house, the streets. You can't see out your window. And then 20 minutes later, 
brilliant sunshine, blue skies, and then it'll happen again a couple hours later in the next morning. So I have no clue how to cope with this weather, but I have moved here, so I'm I'm committed. So you're listening to us here talking about a very important topic, data, data everywhere, and yes, it is. Reality check for all of you out there in companies around the world. You have more data than you've ever had before. What are you doing with it? How are you handling it? But more important, can you trust it? Maybe not, and that's what we're exploring today with our panel of experts, Chris Hallenbeck at SAP, Brian Hunter at Siemens, and Chris Kernahan at Bluefin Solutions at Mindtree. So we're going to take a quick break, 90 seconds. I promise we'll be right back after that, and we're going to do a deep dive into our roundtable for sure. We kind of already have, but we're going to do it more seriously when we come back. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. You know the drill. Aaron out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Insights from totally new sources of data, sensors that capture and share what is happening in your business environment, and the tools to understand it and act on it. These are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Internet of Things with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Internet of Things with Game Changers. Exactly. And I have to say a thank you shout out to Ira Burke and his team for putting together these shows. And Chris I, Chris H., I know you work closely with Ira. I know he's on your team. I want to tell you, Chris Hallenbeck, that this series is one of our most popular and has been for the past four or five years. People are listening all over the world and they love this content. So we're doing something right. Just wanted you to know. And now let's get to our topic here. Data, data everywhere, but why can't you trust it? Chris Hallenbeck told me the following. It's going to be a jump 
jumping off point for other things he wants to talk about. But he says, in this data age, where data is an asset, its value, its relevance, and its quality must be tracked. Access frequency is a critical proxy for value, but there are others as well. Chris Hallenbeck, take me where you want to go with this, please. Two minutes, and then we'll go around the table. Thank you. Yeah, I think we take a look at the data, and especially data in the cloud. And because moving data is expensive. You know, we, it's kind of like Hotel California, although cloud for vendors and SAP included lets you put your data in for near free, and then if you want to get your data out, they charge you quite a bit. And on top of that, you have bandwidth is not that high in the cloud, and latency is, fairly, is, is actually fairly high. So you have low bandwidth, high latency, and relatively high cost of moving it. So when you go and you choose to do that, you have to make serious choices about what data you're going to move, do you refine it in place, and, and where's it going to go? So what is, how do you know where all the data is? The next piece is, so you have to know where that is. And it's also getting back to the core topic of the conversation. If someone wants to understand their customer, how do they do that? The data of what explains the customer is tied up in you know, uh, how they interact with your applications and on your website. Well, that's in log files. That's probably in like an Amazon S3 object store, which is, doesn't even have a management system. Then you have the IoT data, how they actually use your products. Well, that's up in some distributed key value store on these edge databases. And yet, who they are, what they've bought from you, their entitlements, that's in an SAP system. And something else might be in the definition of a customer might be up in a CRM cloud system, likely. And so how do you have a single model of that? How do you actually understand where all that is? Because you can't have somebody who wants to understand customer know how to go to all those systems. How do you make that transparent so they can just say, oh, I just want to look at this thing, this object called customer, and that's all handled for me and orchestrated. But that's got to be performant. But you can't have all that data close by. You can't have it all in memory. But certainly you need some. So not only do you have to sort of abstract out this where all the data is in the cloud through some sort of abstraction that can orchestrate the data, you then have to track how important it is because the really important stuff that's worth bringing back, and that's also worth putting in memory. And when and as data gets older, its access is less frequent. Well, I need to bump that out, and then I need to tear that down into a warm store, into a cold store, and get away. But I have some data, like, you know, it may be very, very old, but it's master data. And therefore, I need to keep that near and close. I need to keep that hot all the time. And so tracking data, how often it's accessed, how important it is, that determines your levels of security, whether it's in a hot store, like uh, in memory, or whether you drop it down into a cold store into disk into something that's less relevant. And all that's very crucial because the data volumes are getting so large. And cloud computing is expensive just as on-prem is, and we have to be careful of that make sure uh, that customers can control their costs. Chris, I feel like I learned a ton just from listening to you right now because, you know, I'm not, I used to be tech, but I'm not anymore. And I'm quoting you in on Twitter here, moving data in the cloud is expensive, high latency, low bandwidth. What data is important enough to move and where do you want it to go? So you're on record as saying all of that. Thank you very much. That was like a handbook on, on data in the cloud. Thank you very much. Brian Hunter at Siemens, we'd love to get your thoughts on what Chris Hallenbeck just shared. Go ahead, Brian. Well, actually, I was going to take things in a little different direction um, mm-hmm. and talk about uh, data self-service. <clears throat> One of the things that we've uh, at, at PLM have worked for the last four or five years on is, is uh, uh, providing reporting self-service where IT provides the data in an analytic-ready format 
So you have piles of data like customer or revenue or orders, or you know you've got and you've got them separated out in facts and and uh, and uh, 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 measures. So mm-hmm. um, you so you you want to uh, to provide that data in a way that makes sense so it's easy to report on, right? So it's because it's self service, and you have business people that may not be able to write SQL doing these reports. Um, the next for us, the next step was then to provide data self service. Um, one of the reasons that I think it's really important to do that is that the the closer your business is to the data, the better off they're going to be. If IT is writing all the reports mm. and providing all their data, then they're not getting their hands dirty. It's one thing to read a book about gardening. It's another thing to get your hands dirty in the soil and have to water the plants and and make thing you know make things grow. That's a whole different experience, right? And the same is true with data using data and with um, with doing reporting. And so that's so uh, we're actually uh, standing up the ability for our customers to go in and uh, and and take. Um, I wouldn't say transactional raw data, but maybe one step away from that, I would call it data lake data versus it being in a data warehouse where it's very conformed and dimensionalized. And they would be able within the data lake to to connect data, disparate data sources together, like you could take Salesforce data and and, uh, connect it to SAP revenue data, that sort of thing, and create reporting as, as they need to. They have, the business knows the reporting needs, IT does not. And it makes a lot more sense for them to be doing that um, over over time. Um, again, because we want them to be close to the data, but also it also um, uh, preserves uh, precious IT resources. So that's been that's really where we're trying to head right now with data, is uh, is get the cust- get the the business as close to the data as we possibly can. Thank you very much. Also great insights. Let's turn to Chris Kernahan. Chris, we want to stay on the topic of what uh, what Chris Hallenbeck started and a little bit about the self, self-reporting, self-service reporting that Mr. Hunter just added. So, Chris K., talk to me. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I actually find it interesting both where Chris and, and Brian went, went to with this, and, and I think that you know, they, they went very much, you know, Chris went on a very uh, sort of a user uh, user created data, and uh, and Brian went with self service reporting. I I work in a very technical arena, and I work with data scientists and people like that. So I look at a lot of system generated data and also um, non curated data for for people. And for me, what I actually tend to find, and I agree with Chris, is that um, getting data out of the cloud can often be quite expensive, but in some of the scenarios that I'm actually working with, sensor data, IoT data, the best place actually to put it, to stream it, is actually up into the cloud, um, into things like, you know, um, into, in, into uh, Amazon EMR or, or into um, big data services or something like that so we can actually have that scalability in order to, to, to work. Um, and similarly, when you're working on those types of data sets, um, quite often it's data scientists doing things like predictive analytics and things like that, you know, for, for predictive maintenance or predictive failure. And to do that, you have to work with a, a, a non-curated data set nearly because you need both the signal and the noise in order to train 
the models that are actually going to give you the right predictions. If you, so the way I tend to think of it is, if if you're actually working with end users, you need to create curate the data as close to the data source as possible to get the cleanest data for them to work with, because they want signal and very little noise. But the data scientists, you actually want to keep the curation as close to runtime as possible, so that they keep the signal and the noise to make it easier to train the data sets. So I, I kind of come at it from a, a, a bit more of a, a, not so much an end user point of view, but a, a slightly more technical um, mm-hmm. system created uh, sort of view. Thank you very much. I'm going to circle back to Chris Hallenbeck and ask, Chris, we've had some very interesting comments spun off from your starting starting topic there. Do you want to make any comments back to your co-panelist, Chris H.? Yeah, I think Chris is spot on, especially with an emerging trend. I mean, you see now that companies really are starting to take um, things like machine learning um, or just advanced analytics um, and starting to put it into automated business processes, not just one-off analysis. That data is in the cloud because that's the right place to put it. You want to put it close to the source of generation and in the least expensive store typically. But now when you go to build these models, you're not going to bring all the data back. You've got to push the processing out to where the data is because frequently bringing it back is costly, as we keep talking about. So how do you do that? How do companies grapple with that? That when they go to actually build out their models, they need as much data as possible to feed in to into the algorithms to try to go through and have and do that. Then you end up with a final model, and then you can bring that back to score it very quickly, use the clause to the business process. But the amount of data that you need at that moment and the amount of compute that you have to bring up is enormous. Um, and so doing that, especially if you're going to do that on a regular basis, the processes to do that in an automated way is going to be challenging. Right? And, it's, and then I'll also... A lot of that data out there, which is in ungoverned stores, I can buy that. I mean, you know, like let's say that my example of log log files sitting in an industry object store. How do you know that there's not personally identifiable information in there that GDPR mm-hmm. law says that you have to delete, like within minutes of someone confirming that they want to be forgotten? But you don't because it's not under management. It's just a bunch of files. So, but the moment you look at the data. Well, if you do it, and if someone goes in and reads that data, they literally violated the lock. They looked at PII data. So how do we grapple with that? You know, people have been jokingly calling that Schrodinger's data. You know, you, you don't know if it's, if it's illegal or not until you look at it. And the moment you look mm-hmm. at it, you violated the law. So yeah. how, do we, how do we grapple with data out there in the cloud? It's got to be out there. It's the only viable answer, really. And yet, and yet at the same time, grapple with... These new automated business processes, like Chris was talking about, or making it available to people to what Brian was doing, and making sure that we're not in violation when we pull that data in from non-traditional data sources, like log files, or just distributed key value stores holding streams of IoT data. Mm. Thank you, Chris. Very interesting. Did I hear somebody uh, make a comment or just say, hmm, who is the hmm? Want to say something? Go oh, ahead. No, that, 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 that was me. Chris has articulated brilliantly the type of stuff that I'm actually looking at. It, it, it absolutely is. It, it, yeah, he articulated it per- perfectly. Thank you. Good. We, li- we like to get validation on these calls now. Let's that. move to... <laughs> go, go ahead. Uh, let's. I know you That's will. Let's... I'll take that comment. 
Let's. Well, I'm glad you did. I want to move to something interesting uh, in Brian Hunter's notes here. Brian, you have a comment that's provocative and uh, not a techie comment, but provocative. And I think it bears saying on the show. So let me read this and have you just run with it. And then quickly we'll go around the table and then I'll find something in Chris K- Chris K's notes. So you say every company has stories of executives showing up to meetings with conflicting numbers. That should not ever happen. Reporting is 85% getting data analytic ready and 15% reporting. This sounds like a very easy formula, Brian. What's going on? Well, uh, the point is that um, you really need to to have one source of the truth. Um, A lot of companies, including to some extent PLM software, um, may have have more than one source of the truth. Um, where you are extracting data from different sources and therefore getting different answers. Um, that's something that, that we've, we fight against mightily all the time and something that, um, with, with regard to governance, um, is their number one priority is to make sure that that, that particular situation doesn't happen where you've got, you know, two or three people in a board meeting with headcount reports and they're, they're fighting over the numbers, not the content of the report or not the, you know, the, the current topic. Um, and so, uh, what we've done to try to, um, to make that not happen is, uh, is, is to govern our data. So our, our master data in particular, runs through our all the way through our transactional system from opportunity all the way through revenue um, and and is kept the same all the way through so that's the first thing we did to uh, to fight that but secondly is the way that we um, uh, when we create um, uh, data in the in the da- in, in our data lake or, or data warehouse that that's all governed as well the business has to sign off on it it has to be verified and and there you know a little check marks put by it that it's now certified data um, and that's the data that can be used for for reporting um, you can in in development or ad hoc you can do whatever you want but if you're going to move something to production it has to be certified by the business as being accurate um, before you can uh, publish any reports against that data so the the key is that you have to get your data right first, and then the re, the reporting part. If you're doing the if you're if you're creating analytic ready data, and and for example, we do a lot of of the joining of tables and and uh, uh, and, and uh, imparting friendly names on column names, especially you know uh, complicated data. Um, if you do all that for the business, um, then the reporting part really is pretty simple normally there's not the reporting is is is, uh is not you're not having to do all that the extra work of joining the tables and understanding how to do all that you're just creating reporting so that's why i say you know 85 percent of your time and 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 money um is spent Mm -hmm. on the uh on the on the data management piece and only 15 percent is actual reporting um that's how i get that that uh, statistic Thank you very much. That was very helpful. And you know what? In the interest of time, because we just have four minutes till we go to our, I know it flies, four minutes till we go to our predictions round. Chris Kernahan, I have a very, another very provocative statement in your notes that I would like you, it's almost like poetry. I'd like you to talk about it just for a couple minutes and then we'll go back to Chris H and start our predictions. You say data is not like oil. It is like water. It has different levels of purity. It is not a finite resource. It is recyclable and it has the power to to reshape our enterprises the same way water 
has shaped our landscapes. Chris Kernahan, that's beautiful. Where'd you come up with that? Talk to me. What does this all mean? I, I think I'm in poetry land here. Go ahead. <laughs> um, it, it was actually, I, um, I was reading Bernard Marr, um, one of the contributors for Inc. And he, he was actually challenging the idea that data was like oil. And, and that's, that's where it, it came that it was, he, he had remarked that data was a finite resource. It wasn't really recycled particularly well. And therefore, many of the attributes that, that we attribute to it, um, because of its value, uh, meant that people liked, uh, likened it to, to oil. And I started to think about what, what, what actually is another resource that um, is, is actually quite valuable. And it, it seems kind of strange, but I was actually watching a Quantum of Solace, where uh, the James Bond movie, where everybody assumes that um, the bad guy is building a massive pipeline for oil, when in fact what he's actually doing is actually damming and, and reservoiring water, and treating water is the most valuable resource for the country that he has just engineered a coup for. And it, that that's when it hit me that I actually prefer to think about data like water because it is recyclable because it does inherently have value it's just that in many places in the world because we have an abundance of water um we don't actually think of it as having that intrinsic value and genuinely nothing has actually reshaped the landscape of this planet more than water in the form of ice in the form of running water in Mm -hmm. the form of you know steam whatever and it does have different levels of purity. When we start to look at the types of data that we actually interact with, you know, we can think of things like social media data as lake water. You, you, you can drink it, you can find you know, solace in it, you can find insight in it, but it still needs, you know, in order to, you know, to use it day to day, it does need curation. When you then look at IoT data, you can think of IoT data as um, you know, tap water. You know, it is... A IoT data is structured data. It's you know there's usually a lot of signal in there. You'll occasionally get noise from field sensors and things like that. And then you can move on to ERP data, which you could consider to be bottled water, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that becomes you know because it is again curated data. It forms part of a business process. You can have reasonable levels of assurance of its data quality and so on and so forth. And that, that, that really just fit really well for me. And uh, you know, I've, I've given it a number of times in presentations and things like that. And it just it seems to, to hit the point home pretty well. So, yes, yeah, so that's, that's, that's why I, I, I think of data as water instead of oil. Thank you very much. Very provocative. Of course, we've heard data is the new oil. We hear all data is the new gold. We hear all kinds of metaphors. I like yours very much, and I appreciate the poetic way of looking at it with all the types of water and what it's done to our world. Thank you, Chris K. Chris H. Hallenbeck, I'm ready to talk to you. Time for our crystal ball predictions round. You've done this before, and I'm going to give you exactly 60 seconds so we can get a little bit from everybody. Take a look in the future, Chris Hallenbeck, and tell me what do you think will change about this topic? data data everywhere but why can't we trust it will we be able to chris 60 seconds go i think that actually the companies are going to actually start sharing their data less um i think to chris's point 
people are starting to understand that data has value, and I actually start to think about data as value density. Once it's been condensed, some data has extremely high value density. Some has less. It hasn't been refined yet. IoT data until it's been analyzed or condensed has massive volumes of data, but low value density until it's been refined. And so you have all the hyperscalers trying to get to that data. They figured out that once you get data, it has gravity and other data moves to it, and then, and then it gets locked in. And then other companies that already have value-dense data that were letting it into the cloud are realizing they shouldn't because what they're doing is they're giving away the future, the future ability to sell services, the future ability to have that gravity that then affects other data. And so what I think you're going to actually see is everyone starting to try to force lock-in much more heavily than they have historically. I don't think sharing is going to happen. And then, and then and the hyperscalers trying to come up with data because they don't have the high-value density data. And then where the other folks do? And so actually I think we're going to – I think it's going to be difficult on our customers um, because now that people are figuring out the future is the cloud and the data – is really the number one key component, plus some services, but really the data. Thank you, Chris H. Let's move quickly to Brian Hunter. I can give you 60 seconds. That's all we've got. What do you predict? Brian Hunter at Siemens, go. Well, my first prediction is the Cowboys will win the Super Bowl this year. Um, my second prediction is... <laughs> There's always one in the crowd. It well had done. to be you. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. That's a whole other show. <laughs> I, I do agree with Chris that uh, that the more and more data will move to the cloud over time. Um, in fact, Siemens Corporate has an initiative of cloud first, but we're, we barely have a trickle of data going there now. But I do see that expanding over time. Um, I do think that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that things like um, data self-service, predictive analytics, and, uh, and, and part of that, too, artificial intelligence, uh, will gain more and more traction over the next few years. Um, that's a pretty easy prediction to make, um, but I do think that that's the truth, that as companies uh, mature in their, in their data management, as they get better control of their data and understand that they, they have an awful lot of it and they need to, to pick out the parts that are meaningful for them to manage their, their business. Um, but you'll see more and more focus on predictive analytics and uh, artificial intelligence, um, as well as uh, data self-service in the, you know, keeping the business close to the data. Thank you, Brian Hunter. And last but not least, Chris Kernahan, I have 60 seconds for you, and that's it. Go ahead, Chris K. Oh, I, uh, so I'm, 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 I'm going to struggle to not go the same sort of area that, that Chris Hallenbeck with. It, it, GDPR is absolutely huge. Um, um, it, it has actually redefined for a lot of my customers the idea that you know, data is uh, actually a liability for them. Um, um, to Chris's point, I agree. I think they're actually going to share less um, because of the, the unknown, you know, is there personally identifiable um, information there? But then if you flip that on its head, data is also an asset on your balance sheet because if, it has, if, you, if you can quantify it as a liability, then you automatically quantify its value and you actually start to understand what that data actually means how its value equates to your to your enterprise to your company and that can actually make business cases easier to create to do a lot more interesting stuff with data because you've assigned a value to something and if you've assigned a value to something and you want to do something with it then you must be able to 
to say, and this is the expected return on investment, and this is what we can do, and this is how we can increase the value of this data. Chris, so, I want to thank you. I, we are simply out of time. We thank you no so much to the three panelists. I'm so sorry. We just had a good time. Chris Hallenbeck, thank you. Brian Hunter, thank you. Chris Kernahan, thank you. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Shout out to Aaron at World Talk Radio, our engineer. He's got to close. And here is our call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Go get that data. Keep it close to you and make it work. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.